Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Molly Gordon. Whether she is writing about authenticity and practical joy, or wandering the streets of her island home, Molly Gordon is seeking profound connection to self, to others, and to the world. An accidental entrepreneur and coach for nearly 30 years, she has connected to her heritage of writing and shared her wisdom with thousands of readers. In Molly's words, writing is a way to let insight flow through her. And truly, it does. Molly, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm, I'm honored to be here, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking about your work, both as a writer and as a coach, and some of the major themes that come through your work, as well as your ideas on life and creativity and changing the world. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So to start off, I'd love to know, what is writing to you? You know, I've considered myself a writer since I was a little, little girl. And, and in a way, it was part, as I was growing up, it was part of my identity. It was, uh, I mean, the phrase self-expression barely captures what it meant to me to be able to write. And, and I don't know what it is to me today. That's so funny. Um, because I don't feel as identified with it. I guess I think writing is a way that it's a way to connect. It's a way to connect and it's a way to let insight speak through me. I think that's what I would say today. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You in your work as a coach and a mentor use writing to share your ideas and to connect with others, you also use um, language through speaking. Mm -hmm. You do a lot of videos on your blog, uh, having conversations about that. And I'm interested in how you find the difference to be between physically writing language and speaking it. That's such a great question. I've been wondering about it a little myself because I used to write every week and now I do a weekly video and a monthly blog post. There's a way, there's a way in which speaking and making the videos frees me up to make very small points in a very simple way. And I think this is this is my own heritage of writing and and the kind of the weight of all the years of taking myself seriously as a writer. There's a way in which I think sometimes when I write, I feel the pressure to say something. Mm-hmm. When I make a video, I ask myself the question, what do I know? What's one thing I know right now? 
that I can share in a clear and simple way. And the older I get, I was telling another coach and friend of mine this just a little while ago, I feel like I know less, but what I know, I feel like I know very clearly and it's very simple. So it doesn't take a long time and a lot of words to say it. And I think that's one reason I've been leaning toward video. Hmm. Interesting. I, I like this idea of of it not being about the volume of knowledge, but how well you know something and the importance of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it just occurred to me when you asked me at, at the top of the podcast what writing meant to me, and I honestly hadn't reflected on that. Um, and I said something about it's a way for insight to speak through me. At its best anymore, I hope that's what I let writing do. Instead of it being a mouthpiece or a way for me to express myself, it's just a means for that greater intelligence, that greater wisdom that we're all part of to take form for a moment and to take form in words and in language. And somehow, I guess I find it more challenging to do that in writing than to do it in video because there's still a way in which I tend to take myself seriously as a writer and I don't take myself so seriously on video. Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it does. I, I can relate to this idea of the enormity of writing mm-hmm. and and sitting down and feeling that pressure to have this almost ridiculously profound insight mm-hmm. and and to to find the way to temper that pressure which comes i think both from inside ourselves as well as the enormity of the written word that we consume and to allow for that to relax a little. And um, I like the way that you describe sitting down to do a video and asking yourself, what do I know right now? I think for me, I may not have realized that I do that, but I think I do that when I sit down to write because I still find some some lesser pressure and some comfort in the act of writing by hand, mm. um, which for me yeah. is a starting place for almost everything. Um, I, I have been thinking lately, I don't know how I'm ever going to do without paper. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Because for me, the act of writing by hand is still very much that... Um, it's my means of connecting to the greater wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I love that question about what do I know right now and how that can be a starting point for the wisdom that we share. So I'm sitting here nodding away. One of the core themes of your work uh, in writing, in coaching, in your video series is connecting to authenticity. Mm-hmm. It comes up a lot around your 
work of authentic promotion and authentic wealth, Mm -hmm. as well as living an authentic life. And I'd love to hear more about what authenticity means to you and how that manifests itself in your work and in your work with others. Right. Authenticity... I think authenticity is an issue for us whenever we're in a situation or facing a situation that's fraught with the potential to be self-conscious. And that's a lot of life and a lot of business. Mm -hmm. And I first got onto authenticity as a theme when I started working with artists around marketing their work. And I observed that when it came to talking about themselves and promoting themselves, there was a way in which they seemed to think that self-promotion was inherently inauthentic. And what occurs to me right now, as I kind of recapitulate this, is that any time we're in a situation where we start thinking about ourselves a lot, we become self-conscious and that becomes a situation fraught with the potential for inauthenticity because as soon as I'm thinking a lot about myself, I start second guessing myself. I start um, almost um, uh, inevitably start managing my self-image, whether internally managing it to my own eyes or externally trying to manage how you perceive me. And as soon as I start managing how I'm perceived, there's an almost unavoidable degree of what feels like inauthenticity. But it all arises out of thinking about ourselves a lot. And this isn't where I started with authenticity, but where I've landed these days is that the remedy is to recognize that Thinking about ourselves a lot generally just gets us into deep doo-doo. And and the more I think about myself, the more I try to examine myself, figure myself out, fluff myself up, manage my feelings, correct my thinking, adjust my attitudes, the more cosmetic work I do, even deep work, Mm -hmm. the more I muck things up. And the further away I get from the very authenticity that I'm seeking. And and the good news is that that authenticity that we're seeking is always present. It's always there under the surface. It is our true nature. So these days, I just point my clients and myself as much as possible at the, uh, that our nature is to be authentic, that it's also human nature to get caught up in thinking about ourselves and to get self-conscious, and that that throws us temporarily into feeling inauthentic, but that's just like a temporary storm. It, It doesn't make the sun of authenticity go away. Does this make any sense at all? I feel a little like I'm babbling. No, you're I'm good. No, it makes sense. Trying to connect, you know, work from 30 years ago to work from today. And, <laughs> and there's a big stretch. 
<laughs> no, it's um, it makes sense because I think that the core tenant is that when we start to get in our heads, mm-hmm. we start losing that connection to heart and to greater self and to the more universal experience. Yep. And I think that's true when we're writing just as much as when we're living Absolutely. and when we're when we're teaching and when we're um, mentoring and when we're being mentored. When we reach that moment of losing track of Actually, I think it's the inverse. I think it's when we start keeping track of what's happening in more um, theoretical ways and more um, cognitive ways. We start to lose some of that. For me, it's the mystery. We lose some of the mystery that is Mm -hmm. happening and that that work around self and identity starts to become more prescient and we're not as much experiencing, but mm-hmm. thinking and analyzing and processing. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. You talk about in your work um, the importance of having a dream not as a theoretical object not as a a theoretical goal but as something that is a motivator and work that something that we work toward and that isn't a perspective that is held by a lot of people because it seems that having dreams as a, a a point on the journey requires a certain level of commitment and vulnerability. Hmm. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on bringing dreams and having dreams in the concrete world more so than the someday world. I think what I'm going for is the difference between um, dreaming about someday and dreaming about someday that will that is in my future does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah I think so so what I got is um is the difference between dreaming as a far-off abstract possibility and taking on dreaming as an active part of creating reality beginning in the here and now okay Okay. So this is really interesting to me because on the one hand, I think it's that my tagline, my, my company's name is Shaboom, life could be a dream. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that tagline is that it's so nuanced. It can mean so many things. Life could be a dream. Am I dreaming or am I awake? How do I know? Did I dream last night and now I'm awake? 
or am I dreaming now and I was awake last night? It's, I remember even as a very little girl, I was intrigued by that. And we dream up our ideas. We dream up our goals. What comes to mind right now is that many years ago, I dreamed up the idea of taking my niece, Amy, who was then, I think, uh, I think she was maybe in sixth or seventh grade, I dreamed up the idea of taking her to Europe for her high school graduation. And at the time, I was a brand new coach. I had one client, no money in the bank. And, you know, and it was a really big, audacious dream. And by God, in four or five years, however long that was, um, I think she must have been a freshman in high school. I took her to Europe for a month. Mm. We went to Europe and then to Washington, D.C. and New York City, and we were gone for 28 days, and it was amazing. So it was a dream that became reality. So I know from my own experience that we can dream things up and get into action and bring them about. That said, I think it's really important that we understand that happiness doesn't come from making the dream happen. That, that happiness is always an inside-out um, prospect, an inside-out job, and that I'm happy when I'm engaged and alive and involved in my life, not when my life works out a certain way. Because we've all seen people who have achieved the externals in their lives, and they're just miserable. So it's pretty obvious that having, quote, dreams come true doesn't make us happy. So it's a, talking about dreaming and making dreams come true can be a little bit of a slippery slope because I don't want people to get the idea that the reason to make dreams come true is to be happy. I think the reason to dream things up and make them come true is because we're part of this amazing, creative, infinite energy and intelligence in the universe, and it's in our nature to make shit up, if I can say that. It's in our nature to dream things up. Yes. And some of it comes true and some of it doesn't, but it's our nature to be creative. And so... And so it's important that we do it because just like um, a hunting dog is happiest, you know, Labrador retriever is happiness when it's running and swimming and jumping and chasing things. As creative human beings, we're happiest when we create. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. And that, that difference between acknowledging that when we connect to the things that bring us joy and bring us happiness is where happiness starts and not the pursuit of the next big thing. Mm -hmm. um, that when we're connected to that feeling, it allows us to have greater clarity. And um, I think it really gives us the opportunity to take stronger and more authentic action toward achieving those dreams because we're already in that flow and we're already in that place. Yeah. You know, my friend Michael Neal says it something like this. He says, success comes from happiness, not the other way around. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I'd love to know some of the best advice you've ever received. Hmm. So I've received and given a lot of advice over the years. Oh, I know what it was. <laughs> One of my mentors, Linda Pransky, and it, and it was in the last year, said to me, don't try so hard. Hmm. And at the time, I thought it, it really resonated because I've been an overachiever all my life. So on the one hand, it kind of resonated. But on the other hand, by the time I got to Linda, I thought I was so over overachieving that I wasn't. <laughs> I thought, am I still doing that? Mm. <laughs> and I guess, you know, I guess I am. And I said to her, really? I said, wow, I try so much less than I used to. And she laughed and said, you need a new scale. <laughs> <laughs> You need a new scale. And what don't try so hard means to me is uh, now is uh, is another piece of advice that I actually wrote in a blog post and I put it as trust the hum. And that's a, a more positive way of saying don't try so hard. The hum is that sense of well-being and connection that we sometimes have when we just feel wired up or connected or in touch with our wise self or our higher self or God or the universe or love, however, you know, people who are listening think of it. And wisdom resides in that hum. And when I'm trying to figure it out myself and to get it right, that's Molly trying hard. And when I don't try so hard and I just relax a bit and trust the hum, that's when, that's when life's good. And that's when good ideas happen, if they happen. Sometimes it's just peaceful in the hum. Mm. So trust the hum. Mm. I love that. You have used the phrase, the immense practicality of joy. Mm. And that is a phrase that I really love. And I think each time I come across it, it has a, a slightly different understanding for me. Um, I think depending on where I am and what I'm going through and, and what, what's happening in my world. And I'd love to know where that phrase comes from and how it, it speaks to you and through you. Right. Well, you know, it's a perfect companion to trust the hum because I think it's it's kind of the same thing. Um, joy for me is is the experience of what I'm calling the hum. It's an experience of our innate well-being. It's an experience of the way we participate in the dance of creation, in, in the, the energy that we're part of. And it can be there even in the midst of dark times. And I think that joy is, when I talk about the immense practicality of joy, I'm talking about the way in which insight, wisdom, 
connection with other human beings, creativity, all flow from the same wellspring that joy flows from. And when I orient myself around joy in the sense that I give more weight and assign more significance and give more credibility, credence to the ideas and insights that I have when I'm experiencing joy than I do to the ones when I'm feeling disconnection and self-doubt and all that other stuff that I feel all the time. I'm a human being, you know, I feel all kinds of non-joy stuff. Mm-hmm. I've just come to see that it doesn't have a lot of inherent validity. It's like signal to noise. Joy is signal, self-doubt, self-criticism, worry, anxiety, envy. That's all there, but that's noise. And some days there's a lot of noise going on. But that doesn't change the fact that it's just noise. The signal is joy. And for life navigation, for purposes of creating a life, creating connections with other people, making dreams come true, it's a lot more practical to pay attention to the signal, to trust joy, than it is to get caught up in the noise. Mm. I would love it if you could share some of your writing with us. Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Great. I chose a piece, um, and it's funny because this um, references an actual dream I had, um, a blog post called Creating Success on and off the roller coaster. A few years back, I had a recurring dream. I found myself on a long, high overpass, part of a complex system of roadways and bridges. As I drove, the pavement morphed into something like roller coaster tracks. The ups and downs became more and more pronounced, and the crossbars got further and further apart. I wondered how the road could possibly support the car in spite of the growing gaps. I kept expecting to fall, but I never did. When I worked on this dream, I realized that the road represented the path into the future. The further I tried to see into the future, the more uncertain the road became. I realized that when I expected myself to see what could not be seen, the road appeared perilous when in reality, it was simply unknowable. And that unknowable road, in fact, provided unfailing support. Go figure. How can we figure out what to do? The unknowable road brings to mind a problem my clients often bring to coaching. They report being stuck because they don't know what to do next. Over the years, I've noticed that there are two types of these what-to-do-next questions, and they require very different responses. The first kind of what-to-do question is technical. It's actually more of a how-to-do question. For example, what should you do to set up a blog, rent an office, or edit a video? 
The answers to technical questions can be found by resorting to the vast store of human knowledge and expert help. You can find a tutorial on YouTube or hire someone to do the job. Technical what-to-do questions can be maddening, saddening, expensive, and complicated, but they can always be solved by the application of known techniques or skills. While they can be puzzling when they lie outside your own area of expertise, they are not inherently mysterious. The second kind of what-to-do question is inherently mysterious. Thomas Merton is reputed to have said, life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. He was talking about this second kind of what-to-do question. Whom should you marry? What business should you be in? Where should you live? Answers to those what-to-do questions cannot be found on YouTube. We create our lives out of and into the unknown. As creative beings, we continually project ourselves and our desires into an unknowable future. We use technical knowledge to figure out how to make things happen, which is an amazing and wonderful human ability. The application of technical knowledge to a dream or desire is how we create weddings, gardens, and businesses, among other things. But all the technical knowledge in the world can't guarantee that our creations will turn out the way we want them to. No matter how much technical knowledge we bring to bear, the future remains unknowable. So how do you know what to do? If your standard for creating success is that your creations turn out the way you plan, there's just no way to know what to do. But what if there's another standard? What if the standard for success is not about the outcome, but your come from? When you come from a belief that your future happiness is dependent on a future outcome, you're on pretty shaky ground. Life is risky. But when you define success from the inside out, creating success becomes considerably less risky. Your happiness is not dependent on the vicissitudes of life, but flows naturally from a native state of well-being and peace. When that's your come from, what you should do is a function of your best understanding in the moment. Not a perfect understanding, I, for one, could wait a very long time for that, but your best understanding. Wisdom as it appears to you in the present. So where do you go from here? Think for a moment about the what to do questions in your life or business. Notice which ones are technical and which mysterious. By all means, put technical solutions to work where they fit. The successful solution of a technical problem is a thing of beauty. But as for the mysterious what to do questions, set aside technical standards for creating success. Be curious about the direction in which feelings of happiness, freedom, and peace seem to beckon, not in the form of a guaranteed outcome, but in the form of an ineluctable experience you come from. The choice will become apparent. Then go ahead and commit. Put all of your heart and all of your technical knowledge behind your choice. 
Let go of second guessing and use all the resources at your command in the service of creating success. Just remember that the success you're creating exists on the ride, not at the end of the roller coaster. Mm. Thank you. That was really fantastic. Mm. Yeah, there's so much goodness in that. Well, what I love is how much of of what you've asked me so far actually ties into that. I didn't I didn't know that when I picked out the piece. So that's kind of <laughs> well then perfect synchronicity then. Mm-hmm. That works out well. One of the concepts that you're known for um, talking about and sharing and writing about is the accidental entrepreneur. And that has been a part of your work in the past. And I'd love to know, as your work has shifted, what you're focusing on now with your clients and in your own world. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. So (laughs) I remember talking to another coach a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, as my work began to shift. And I said, please, God, I'm afraid I'm becoming a life coach. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I'm a life coach. Because for so many years, I had worked primarily with people on their businesses. And, And what's become more important to me is to just help people be happier, to help people trust the hum, whether that's as parents or in their relationships or in their businesses. There's There's no part of life that isn't improved by trusting the hum. And so my work really has broadened in the last few years from working primarily with entrepreneurs to working with anyone who wants to experience more well-being, who who wants to experience greater ease and clarity and creativity in their life. So I've got clients in a lot of different areas these days. Hmm. It's just the opposite of what I used to teach people about niching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yet somehow I think that's okay. <laughs> I do too. I do too. You know, the reason to declare a niche is to make it easier for people to see you and to resonate with you and to recognize where you may be able to add value in the world. And I feel that, uh, that there's, there's virtually nothing in the world that can't be made. Um, how do I want to say this? I guess it, and it's partly perhaps because I've been, um, uh, active and in business now for almost 20 years, but I feel like I'm visible and accessible and it's easy enough for people to tell where I add value, even if I make a broad statement about being, um, helping people be happy, more effective and creative and resilient. So it's working. You are based in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm wondering if the the sort of general culture and uh, way of living in the Pacific Northwest, particularly um, on the Olympic Peninsula, has 
had an impact on how you approach your work? I know that sounds like a really random question, but <laughs> it sounds like a really sensible question. I've never really thought about it. <laughs> um, my clientele has always been worldwide, so so I'm in one sense. Um, I live and work out of a home office, and so I don't have a lot of people around me to give me feedback that I'm doing it right or doing it wrong. Mm, mm -hmm. So um, (laughs) in that sense, it seems to me it wouldn't matter if I were in Brooklyn or Australia or Suquamish. But on the other hand, um, it's like the water you swim in, the, the value of the culture I live in and how it supports me in doing what I do might be invisible to me. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I'm just imagining if I were living in Manhattan, um, conducting myself in my days the way I do, if I might feel a, a dissonance between my choices and the world outside my apartment door, and I'm guessing that I might. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I live, and uh, we live a, a quite simple life by choice, and we joke that we're easily entertained. You know, I adore (laughs) pulling weeds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I take long walks. My walks used to be an hour long. Now they often stretch to two hour long, Mm -hmm. two hours. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's certainly, there's a way in which the temperateness of our climate, which is rarely too hot or too cold to enjoy being outside, um, certainly creates a nice vibe. so, yeah, there may be an influence that, that I'm not even aware of. I would love to give you the opportunity to speak directly to listeners and share some of your um, takeaway wisdom. Right. I'm going to go back to trust the hum. And... And in going back to it, though, what I would invite listeners to do is notice for themselves the experiences they have had, great or small, of where joy has bubbled up and wisdom has bubbled up in their life and experience. And, you know, as human beings, we all have all kinds of experiences. I talked about the noise, you know. There's plenty of times when I'm feeling envy or confusion or self-doubt or yada, 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 yada. I mean, there's heaps of that. And I don't want to understate that at all. It's just that I've come to see that it is just noise. And that the signal that we're all always also receiving is that sense of joy, that sense of connection, the sense of wisdom or health that underlies everything. And it's in everybody. If you're a human being, you've got it. You were born with it. It's your true nature. And there's a way in which, innocently, I think we've come to work on ourselves and we've gotten confused. We work on the noise trying to get back to the hum. We work on the noise trying to get back to the joy. And instead, I would just encourage people to notice the joy that's already there and to turn their attention to that 
and kind of tune their radio receivers, if you will, to that and know that you don't have to work on yourself to make that happen. It's always happening under the noise. It's always there. And the more we just direct our attention to it, the more we tend to pick it up. And that's been the most profound thing for me um, of my life, is to spend more time trusting the home. Mm. That's beautiful. Molly, I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. It's been really wonderful to sit down and share this conversation with you. Oh, you're so welcome. I feel really privileged. Mm. If listeners want to hear and read more about you and your work, they can find you at shaboominc.com. That's right. Thank you so much for being here. You're so welcome. Thank you, Sarah. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with Alison Gresick, author of Pilgrimage of Desire, a writer's journey out of walking depression. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together. <laughs>